the Pilot TV podcast this week, it's Christmas! Or rather as close to Christmas as we get before bunking off for the festive season. And much like Santa, we are here breaking into your house with a sack full of festive goodies. And each of your three presents has a distinctly BBC shape to it this year as we head back to the school gates for a festive episode of Motherland, join Gemma Arterton and her Himalayan nuns in an adaptation of the novel Black Narcissus, and take a look at the life of hippie-murdering serial killer Charles Sobradge in The Serpent. Plus, Derry girl Nicola Coughlin stops by to talk about the new Shondaland bodice ripper, Bridgerton. I'm James Dyer, and welcome to this final Pilot TV podcast of 2020, a year that will live on in infamy as a global shit show of unparalleled proportions. But at least we got to watch some decent telly. So, as we head into the festive period and families across the country prepare to welcome in Christmas with individual super spreader events, let's assemble Team Pilot one more time. So, joining me in the virtual studio, as ever, are my two co-hosts, Pilot's very own Mrs. Claus, Terry White, and a man who may not be the real Father Christmas, but he's almost certainly friends with him, Mr. Boyd Hilton. How are you both? Very well. That was quite a laboured introduction, wasn't it? Laboured? <laughs> wow. Laboured? Wow. I'll have you know, early. it flowed. It flowed naturally and spontaneously. Yeah. It, was a, it was, we I... are here with our giant sack of TV goodies. I thought you, when oh, you were doing good. the COVID um, thing about the global um, disaster, I thought you were going to make a Mrs. Brown's Boys joke, but you didn't. I would, so uh, what, what would that be? Oh, you know, you could have done a whole elaborate joke about how um, the, the big trauma that we all faced was Mrs. Brown's Boys. Okay, that's true. Mrs. Just... Brown's was a Christmas special. Yeah, yeah. that would have been good. Shall I redo it, boys? We can yeah. start again from the, we we just start again from the top, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Are you, um, are you enjoying us critiquing your, uh, your I would have it no other way. It's Christmas, Terry. It is the time of miracles, but that would be one miracle too far if you both were incredibly supportive and nice to me. So. <laughs> oh, James. Oh. James. James, tell us. Um, tell us. How's your guitar playing going? Uh, I will not be playing any festive oh, yeah. guitar for you. I'm in a, I like to call it a consolidation phase at the moment where uh, I'm trying to, I believe the technical term is become less shit. So uh, <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm struggling with chord transitions, Terry, oh. if I'm honest with you. Chord transitions are, are doing me in. So if anyone listening to this as a guitar player would like to send me some tips, do feel free because, uh, it, yeah, it's it, it's tricky. Do you fancy I'm um, finding it tricky. Do you, do you, so you don't fancy playing All I Want for Christmas Is You by Mariah Carey on this very podcast? I'd need to know how to play it first. I probably need to know how it goes as well. All yeah, I can't believe I you didn't sort that out. Christmas is you, ooh, baby, oh, all the lights That just makes me think of love, actually. Well, well there you go. So yeah. you do know it. <laughs> yeah. It would have been extra topical as well, because this year's um, Supreme Christmas T-shirt is Mariah Carey. Is um, it now? Yeah, Mariah Carey. What's she doing collab. on the T-shirt? She's sitting there being Christmassy, wishing ah, love okay. to all Supreme um, fans. <laughs> at a, at a, like at a hefty yes, price. Yes, in return yeah. for a bucket of money. <laughs> it's, it's, quite, it's, it's only uh, 38 quid, actually. There it's a mere £40 pounds a mere for a T-shirt with Mariah Carey t-shirt. on it. That's what a nothing. bargain. <laughs> it gives you a valuable insight into, uh, into Boyd's wardrobe. Yeah. Full of items of clothing that were worth more than my car. So, excellent. Um, shall we move on to what we've been watching recently? I have the reality check alarm primed and ready to go. <laughs> so, take it away. 
I'm going to mention one reality show very briefly and then not, then two non-reality shows. The brief reality show, just because this is what I, genuinely what I've been watching, is MasterChef The Professionals, which as any MasterChef fan knows, and I include Chris Hewitt in this from a certain other podcast, is the piece de resistance of the MasterChef franchise and has been, this has been another triumphant series, just watching these these culinary geniuses sometimes they're not so such geniuses come up with unbelievable concoctions for the judges to sample has been fantastic and it's been running the last few weeks 10 seconds to go 10 seconds to go and um it's been brilliant that's that so that's the reality out of the way there we go uh, um his dark materials um which as this goes out on monday will just have climaxed mm. so to speak yesterday I, I mentioned a couple of times how I thought that this was such a step up from Series 1. I enjoyed Series 1. It, I, I, the finale was fantastic, I think. Um, brought all the elements together. The themes of um, parenting and kids and their fathers and mothers, which has kind of underpinned the whole thing, is was was superbly um, underlined in the finale. There's some brilliant moments about that, touching upon that. Um, and I, I really liked it. So I think that, yeah, I think that's one of my more surprising um, uh, hits of the year that I wasn't expecting to like that series so much. But it's been it's not really, really quite good. a reverse ferret, but, you know. Almost semi-reverse ferret. I really, no, I liked it. But this, I think a this the second ferret. series has been really special. And finally, I've rewatched a couple of, a few episodes of Servants because the new series starts in, on January 15th on Apple TV+. And by the way, all the it's all there to preview if you've got access to the preview. The whole though. season? Yes. Yep. Yes. Wow. Yes. Well, that's Christmas sauce, yes. isn't so it? So <laughs> I'll leave the new stuff. I left the, leave the new stuff to when we review it inevitably next year. Yep. But I did catch yep, yep. up. I catched. I caught up on the last few episodes, and the reminder is that the penultimate episode, which is the one that M Night Shyamalan directed himself, was actually a 2020 episode because it didn't go out until January of 2020 it should have been in the best of the year because it is still one of the most incredible episodes of tv that yes. i've ever seen and is still unbelievably brilliant it must be weird for you terry i was thinking all the way through to watch this having had your baby because it, the stuff about having babies is absolutely terrifying so yeah but that yeah. episode, oh my God, it's incredible. Terry's not phased by that. She watched like 150 episodes of One Born Every Minute in preparation for <laughs> giving birth. It's my, so. um, my specific type of torture for myself. But I do remember, I was heavily pregnant when, when I finished Servant. And it and I didn't wow. think it'd bother me, but it's like some of the, the stuff was really, really hard to watch. And now I have a physical you know, living child. Um, not uh, a doll. Not a doll. I don't know. Um, yeah. I don't know what it's going to be like dipping back into it. But I am reviewing it for Empire Magazine, so I'm going to watch uh, the entire thing this weekend. Good luck. <laughs> Exciting. So, other than Servant Terry, what have you been so watching? So, I have been watching um, the final of Portrait Artist of the Year, um, <laughs> which, which uh, the sitter was Eddie Izzard, um, which was actually really interesting because it, Eddie Izzard is now going by she, her pronouns. And, oh, really? And I didn't know that. She said it was the first thing she'd done using those pronouns and that previously she'd been gender fluid but n now very much identifying with female pronouns so that was really interesting um but it was a brilliant uh final 10 seconds Massively disagreed with the winner um so there you go and uh the other thing i've been watching um prepare self for the siren to go off again is jesse from little mix left oh, little God. mix this week um <laughs> 
because of um, mental health issues. And actually, there is an amazing BBC documentary called Odd One Out that she made about trolls and her mental health. And I didn't watch it at the time because I didn't think it was really my cup of tea. Um, uh, It accidentally played on iPlayer the other night and I couldn't be bothered to stand up and turn it over. And it's actually really moving and brilliant and like a really fascinating look at um, especially what it's like to be a young woman with a massive profile on social media, how women are still essentially judged on their physical appearance, how sexualized they are, um, how difficult it must be to live under that kind of pressure. And so that's that's it. The end. Wow. How is your West Wing going, Terry? Or is it on pause? It's on pause this week um, because I what, when I like to watch it, I like to watch it with my son. We have a little ritual and we've had some changes to our schedule over the last couple of weeks, which meant we haven't had the same um, setup going on. But we're co- going back into it next week. He's excited. I'm sure he is. I'm sure he is. I need to roll out a quick PSA for our American listeners. Uh, the West Wing leaves Netflix on Christmas Day, which I've got to be honest, is the worst fucking Christmas present oh my ever. God. And it's going to HBO Max. So if you are in America, either watch it all before Father Christmas turns up or <laughs> or buy the box set, because otherwise, you know, you're bollocksed. Everyone in the UK is still on all four. Yeah. Did you see the Aaron Sorkin, Patty Jenkins interview yes. they did together? Yeah. I thought that was so great. Because I think people often regard Aaron Sorkin slightly unfairly as a bit of a twat, you know, yes. like a kind of like a student. <laughs> but I don't think he is. I think he's a really good. I've interviewed him and I, he was great and he was incredibly helpful and everything. And I thought he was really good with Patty Jenkins talking about how he'd like to have a go at writing a superhero movie, etc. I thought that was. I genuinely I mean, would, would you possibly give? sell a large percentage of myself yeah. to watch an Aaron Sorkin yeah. superhero movie. I am. Um, I anybody interested in Aaron Sorkin, there is a piece written exclusively for Empire in the new issue of Empire, which also has the Mandalorian on the cover. So it's also relevant to this podcast. So there, that was just a shameless plug. Plug. Mm. Yeah, but absolutely true. When is that issue out, Terry? (laughs) That issue is um, available for pre-order now at greatmagazines.co.uk and it will be in shops a day early on the 23rd of December. Merry Christmas. <laughs> wow. In contrast to the West Wing on Netflix, that is the best Christmas present. <laughs> yeah, the best Christmas present. Uh, what have I been watching? Well, it's actually, as we record this, it is Friday the 18th of December uh, and I have just watched the season two finale of The Mandalorian and I have many, many thoughts, none of which I can share because they're all massively spoilerific. That There will be a little bit that we're going to have to mention in news uh, to avoid spoilers on, but the last episode is a thing. It is a thing and uh, in a good way? there is much to discuss. I, I can say no more than that, but I do, again, we will be recording our Mandalorian spoiler special today. You can and- say if you'd liked it or not. Oh, I did like it. Yes, oh, I did okay, like good. it. But That's it what, raises yeah, yeah. many questions. Like, it's more complicated than that, boy. Mm, okay. I did like it, but there are big buts and and big buts. many questions raised and not a lot of answers. So we're going to get into that in the Mandalorian Spoiler Special, which we are recording this evening. Okay. Uh, so that will be available now to people who do subscribe to the Empire Spoiler Specials channel. What else have I watched? I must admit, so there's been a lot of love for these the, the big discovery two-parter, uh, of which uh, episode two has dropped today, Terra Firma, which takes place, as you will both know, Terry in particular, in, you know, in the Mirror Universe. Mm. I don't love it. I've got to be honest with you. I find the Mirror Universe really camp and stupid. Like, I enjoyed it when it turned up in Discovery Season 1. I thought it was well handled but it is so over the top and so daft and i just i'm not i'm not feeling it 
I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit disenfranchised from Discovery yeah. at the moment, which is a very upsetting place for me to be. Um, it is only mildly uh, smoothed over by the fact that I've got properly back into Vikings, and I'm very excited about this. Um, I now know why I stopped watching it. You, why, you ask? Well, funny, Terry, that you should want to know that. But the reason I stopped watching it was I finished season four, and I, when Ragnar left, and then I started watching season five, and I watched the first episode, which is a two-parter, and... There, it's just unpleasant. There's a bit where they kill a priest by pouring like molten gold into his mouth, which is like a grimmer version of how Viserys Targaryen meets his end. And I just thought it was grim and it was sadistic and it was unpleasant. And it just left a horrid taste in the mouth. No pun intended. <laughs> and uh, and I just thought, no, I'm not watching this anymore. And that's why I walked away from the show. Uh, so now I've gone back. I rewatched that episode. It's still horrid, but enjoying Jonathan Rhys Myers as the warrior bishop. Yeah, Floki's gone to Asgard, kind of. I'm pretty sure it's Iceland, but anyway, not the supermarket. Um, yeah. Vikings, hooray! So I've got season five to get through over Christmas, and season six is uh, is on the horizon for me. Great, excellent. Glad we had that talk. So, so, so let us let us move on then to this week's listener question. And this came in from a bunch of people, so I don't have a name to go along with this one. But a lot of people asked us, you know, perhaps predictably, but but equally not unfairly, what is our favourite Christmas special? Well, I have a list because I'm can sure I you just do. say what I think British, specifically British telly excels at is Christmas specials. You wouldn't know it necessarily to look at, say, this year's uh, BBC lineup, um, but hmm. traditionally, <laughs> I feel like we really know what people want from a Christmas special. Um, so most of mine, I think, are actually um, they're all British, apart from one. Um, and I think they're all BBC. Um, so let's start with the best of the best of the best of the best, which, as we all know, is the Office Christmas special. Two-parter, completely standalone, revisits David Brent, who's no longer working at Wernham Hog. Um, he's now literally a travelling salesman um, selling dusters and tampons. And um, it's when Dawn comes back from LA and it contains the greatest scene in the history of any Christmas special where um, Dawn re-enters the office to come back with her present that Tim gave her, saying never give up, where which she'd written on a picture she'd drawn on him when he bought her some pencils. And she came in and she walked across the room and just kissed him in front of everyone. And, and they said, watch it, you've got a fiancé. And she goes, not anymore, I haven't. Oh, God, greatest greatest christmas moment ever um but no never no seen t- it ah, what <laughs> oh my god you know i don't like you the office you've never seen the christmas special oh yeah he, he can't watch no, he can't, watch, I can't the, watch the office can't watch it's the too office. excruciating can't, i can't make it can't, through what i've idiot. watched a few episodes and i wanted to die i used to and watch that it. christmas special when i was in um new york and i was homesick i used to watch a lot of BBC telly to kind of comfort me and the office Christmas special used to break me it so brilliantly captures mm. like life yeah. in a typical British town um oh god and it's just so beautiful and funny have I ever told you the story of how I first watched the office Christmas special no go on so I I think I'm the only journal I may be wrong I'm one of the few journalists who went on set of the office series two and um by that point, I got to know Ricky Gervais quite well, Ricky and Steve quite well. And um, when it came to the Office Christmas specials, the last ever episodes, um, I did a we did a feature on it in Heat, and Ricky invited wanted me to see them before they went out. So he invited me to his flat, which he, he then lived with Jane in a flat overlooking Russell Square. 
in the center, right in the center of London, literally overlooking Russell Square, at the top of this apartment block. So I actually watched the whole thing, whole Office Christmas special, parts one and two, as like one ninety-minute movie, with sitting there with him. Oh my god! <laughs> watching it on his TV, <laughs> and it was like instantly you knew you were watching one of the greatest things ever made. Yeah. But also there was the weird element of the fact that, you know, obviously you had to kind of, I was like laughing anyway, but in front of him sitting there and then he's going at the end, he's like, what do you think? And I'm like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's fucking incredible. One of the most amazing things I've ever seen. It's like, oh, wow. Thanks, mate. Yeah. So yeah, that's how I watched the Office Christmas special. Oh my God. Well, in, in stark contrast to that, Boyd, shall I tell you how I watched that mm. show? Was mm. um, This is a new regular. <laughs> So, how did we all watch the office christmas special no, but, but you'll enjoy the contrast with this so we just heard how boyd watched it in the very swanky flat of you know one of the country's premier writers and tv creators i watched it in an ibis on a roundabout in chesterfield on, Chris <laughs> on christmas day itself because oh. um uh uh I am, as you know, estranged from my mother, and this was a Christmas that I was um, I'd gone home and and tried to make an effort to go round for Christmas dinner. It went very badly, shall we say? And I ended up going back to the Ibis um, and getting two Bacardi breezers from the bar. Wow. Ordering a cheese and pepperoni pizza because they that were all they had on Christmas Day, and watching the Christmas Office Christmas special. Drinking my Bacardi breezers, eating my uh, pepperoni pizza. Wow, that is brilliant. Book two, that's that memoir. That is quite the contrast. <laughs> that didn't even make yeah. it into the memoir. That's like, right. that's can, like you that's know. That's incredible. Um, but, so, notable mentions must go to Runaway Bride, the Doctor Who episode where we first meet Donna Noble. Um, Not the snowman. No. He said, dropping the only Doctor Who Christmas <laughs> League know. Well done. Where um, the 10th Doctor was dealing with the loss of Rose. The royal family where Dave and Denise host both sets of parents, but also the one where Nana dies. Gavin and Stacey, and I'm talk I loved last year's, um, but I'm talking about the um, 2008 one when um, the Welsh lot all come down to Essex and they announce, uh, Gavin and Stacey announce they're moving back to Barry and all hell breaks loose. Um, Boyd, is that the episode in which you finger the underwear? It is. Yep. Yeah, I'm Excellent. in that episode. Starring, the very first scene, yep. Starring our very <laughs> own Boyd Hilton. Vicar of Dibley, the one where she has to, Geraldine has to eat four Christmas dinners. Is there anything yes. more British than that episode? I want to give yep. notable, notable mentions to the EastEnders Christmas episodes. Den and Angie, the one where Tiff is run over by Frank, um, the one where Stacey and Max's affair is revealed um, uh, on video. And then finally, I will say one US show. We talked about it a few weeks ago. The West Wing, Noel. You cannot steal the only one I was likely to choose. <laughs> I mean, You've now got you, West Wing you, competition, you I'm afraid. Yeah. <sighs> Go on, Boyd. Okay. I endorse all of those that Terry mentioned. Just to add, the one that I think the big one that's missing for me is The Good Life. So The Good Life um, was How one of my favourite shows. How old are you? <laughs> I'm old. I'm really fucking old, Terry. Yeah. It's just, uh, just occurring to you. Back when Boyd was a, a young whippersnapper in the 1920s. I mean, yeah. yeah, they are repeated on endlessly on gold. But I watched it, absolutely remember watching it live, so to speak, when I was 10 years old in 1977 and absolutely fucking loved it, loving it. Um, 21 million people watched the Christmas special of The Good Life in 1977. It was also the last ever episode of the show, which was incredible. And it summed up everything brilliant about that show because 
because Tom and Barbara um, and Margot and Jerry kind of end up getting drunk together, having celebrating Christmas, and it almost they almost kind of have like a wife swapping situation. It was quite daring, um, in a way, for the time for this most mainstream popular of sitcoms to go down that road in its Christmas special. But it was. F- Absolutely amazing half hour of television. One of my favourite half hours of television. Um, completely the royal family, yeah, absolutely. And the, because the one where Denise ends up in labour at the end of that episode, yeah, with the Radiohead song coming in is incredible. Um, I once mentioned knowing me, knowing Yule with Alan Partridge, mm-hmm. the <laughs> Alan Partridge special, which is I, I see, watched. I've seen that. I've actually oh, well seen done. it. I watch that. I do have to watch that every year. I absolutely have to watch it every year. It's on. It's usually on some channel or other. But I usually have to kind of find it myself and crank it because that it, that sums up. It's one. I think it's one of the great Alan Partridge episodes because it's got everything in it. It's got him trying to get another series from the BBC controller. It's got um, the kidney dialysis machine in a massive giant cracker at the end, singing with Mick Hucknall uh, from Simply Red and his version of the Christmas song. So everything about it is is fantastic. So yeah, I love that one. And uh, an American one I was going to mention is House. There's an episode of House, a Christmas episode of House, where Dr. House's patient in that episode is pregnant. It's a girl who's pregnant. She claims she's never had sex. So it's like a virgin birth story. And it's so clever how they um, resolve that story. And um, that's one of my favourite American Christmas ones ever. See, this question made me realise that the kind of shows I watch are not the kind of shows that have Christmas specials, like, ever. Um, so it, it was slightly slim pickings for me. I mean, Noel is, yes, absolutely. I would also put out In Excelsis Deo from uh, season one of The West Wing is another exceptional sort of Christmassy, festive set episode, if not a Christmas special. Um, ER did, did a few of these. I think I'll Be Home for Christmas, which was Benton's last last episode. That was a good, that was a good one. Um, there was also an X-Files one in involving ghosts in a house and they get possessed i don't remember if it was any good or not but i know it existed i remember it. Um, i don't think it was very good but anyway no yeah. no at least okay. they tried yeah yeah i do obviously friends the one with the holiday armadillo that's christmas steve and that's great uh blackadder christmas carol see mm. i'm slightly torn on because i love blackadder like properly love it that said i don't think blackadder christmas carol is blackadder at its best but it's still blackadder so like yeah, blackadder. Go for that. yeah blackadder's amazing but you don't like comedy yeah blackadder's very nerdy though isn't it yeah. yeah, it was also very snarky. So it's like, well, yeah. I, I like to think that Edmund Blackadder and Rimmer from Red Dwarf shaped a large portion of my humour growing up. <laughs> mm-hmm. so. That makes sense. Yeah, you are Edmund Blackadder, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, so uh, what else is there? Um, I would say the only other ones I've mentioned is I'm sure one of the Chris Mucker episodes from the OC was good. <laughs> um, that's all I've got. There's loads of, I didn't want to be predictable, so I didn't mention it, but there are loads of really good Fraser Christmas episodes, I have to say. Oh, and, um, yeah, yeah they're, they're pretty much all really, really good. There's one where he can't get the, 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 the kind of trendy present of the moment for his son. And um, how they resolved that, I, th- I remember being fantastic. And there's an episode of Kirby Enthusiasm where they, where there's a um, where he has to where he falls into a kind of um, a nativity play. He literally ends up kind of attacking a nativity performance, and that is brilliant. That episode of Kirby. Oh, I actually just thought of one. There's a um, uh, the Nutcrackers, which is a Boston legal Christmas episode, and it's Ooh, the one where well, there's a custody battle involving two white supremacist children. I think it kind of loosely based on on on. Prussian blue but uh, it's great and Shatner as Denny Crane is magnificent in it as always uh, Boston Legal great show if you haven't seen it watch it 
There you go. That's a free banshee for you. Mm. <laughs> Even though I've already banshee. That's been a banshee. Have you um, ever banshee busted on legal? I've had banshee it before. I have done. Oh, know, okay. At least once. Okay. Probably twice. <laughs> okay. Well, those were a selection of some Christmas shows we've seen. So that's uh, that's and in Boyd's case that he's been in. So that's uh, that's all nice. Um, <laughs> if you would like your questions addressed to the podcast, do feel free to send them in in the new year. For there will be no more regular shows this year. Um, we are on Twitter at Pilot TV Pod, uh, or you can send them to me directly at James C. Dyer. Right, time for this week's guest. If you're a fan of Dairy Girls, and let's be honest, who isn't? Uh, you'll be more than familiar with Nicola Coughlin's brilliant work as Claire. You may also have seen her in Harlots, and you'll definitely be seeing her this Christmas in Bridgerton, the latest show from Shonda Rhimes' stable. Uh, so this very sexy period drama based on Julia Quinn's best-selling novels is set in Georgian London, uh, and Nicola plays the delightfully named Penelope Featherington, <laughs> uh, which is something I'm seriously considering changing my name to. She stopped by to talk to Boyd about that and a lot more, and this is what happened. Welcome to the Pilot TV Podcast, Nicola Thank Cochran. you very much. <laughs> uh, where are we speaking to you from today? Where are you? I am in the spare bedroom in my mum's house, which I've sort of converted into my own little <laughs> studio. Amazing. So I've sort of taken it over and I've got my mic in here and my ring light for interviews and everything. But yeah, she doesn't mind at the minute because we can't have guests anyway. So. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. That's, a good, that's a good usage. Yeah, very good. Exactly. <laughs> um, so you are starring in Bridgerton, which is um, it's arriving on Netflix on Christmas Day. So it's clearly yes. like their big, huge offering for the festive season. Season. Yeah. No pressure. I mean, um, it was terrifying when I found out that because we were making it, you have no idea when something's going to be released when you're actually making it. And then when I found out it was Christmas Day, you go, okay, the biggest day of the year. Okay, 190 countries. Okay, oh god, <laughs> you know. But it's so exciting. It's a real honor that Netflix have such faith in it to put it out. Then, but yeah, mildly terrifying too. <laughs> and what was your? How did you get involved in the show to start with? Was it? Had you heard of the books? Had you? Obviously, Shonda Rhimes is part of her Shondaland yes. uh, empire. Um, what was it that attracted you to the whole project? Well, honestly, getting the job was really unexpected, and I mean that genuinely. Um, when I was We'd finished filming Dairy Girls um, at the end of 2018 now, which feels like a lifetime ago. Um, and I was going into auditions and I just had a run of unsuccessful auditions as happens. And you start to tell yourself, oh, okay, I'll never work again. <laughs> I guess that's it. And um, this audition came up. My agent said, you know, Shondaland are making, it's their first show with Netflix. It's this big, big show. It's this. And I kind of thought, okay, that's going to be months of auditions. That's going to be in, out, meeting all these people. Okay. So for the first audition, I think I had like a day to prepare. I didn't have very long. I had never heard of the books. Um, so I just went off what I had the two three little scenes I had I went in and read them um, had a nice time but it was with um, a casting assistant Cole Edwards so, so I was like yeah okay this is one of like a hundred auditions we'll see whatever I'm probably never here again then about two weeks later my agent called and she said uh, the creatives want you for it and I said well what does that mean and she said no no they want to give you the part and I was sort of shocked I thought but how <laughs> How did I get it off of that? Like I wasn't, it was funny because I didn't have a lot of material to work from. So I just did whatever I think, you know, in the audition, I was so shocked. And then I was the first person cast in the show, which was amazing. But you slightly wow. want to go, are you sure you want, are you sure I'm the one that you want? Are you really, really sure? And, you know, then finding out a few weeks later that Julie Andrews had been cast, it was, you know, it's just mind blowing to be involved with. It's amazing. 
Yeah, that's incredible. Julie Andrews is the voiceover um, yes. uh, character who who is a, like a mysterious figure. She's writing these newsletters. Yes. Um, got, and everyone's fascinated to know who she really is. But that is an amazing thing, isn't it? To have to have Julie Andrews involved. I mean, I cried when I found out because they told, <laughs> they told us, they said it's someone really iconic. And, but I really didn't, my brain didn't go there. <laughs> I don't know. It's, I mean, she truly is an icon. She's, you know, she's part of the fabric of all of our lives. Like to me, she's Maria Van Trapp. I know to most people, she's Mary Poppins. And then, you know, her character in Princess Diaries with Shonda also wrote Princess Diaries too. Right. So, you know, she's been involved with Shonda before. It's exciting. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So your character, Penelope Featherington. Yes. Is, not is, easy is, to say that fast. Not easy to say. <laughs> no, exactly. She is described on the, if the fan site. I've been looking at the fan site because oh, these books really? are hugely popular, aren't they? They're yes, a, they're, they're huge. Romantic fiction, major, major kind of big, um, big, hugely popular uh, commercial main fa- uh, romantic fiction. Yeah. And anyway, she's described on this fan site as a vastly intelligent girl with a sharp wit and kind heart. Penelope would prefer to quietly swain in the perimeter of any ballroom rather than take center stage. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's, do you re- identify that with that? Yeah. I think that's, it's funny because you have just done exactly what I did when I got cast. I sort of went, <laughs> oh my God, I have to go back and find out everything in reverse. Um, great mug, by the way. I can see you on camera. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it was sort of like I started lurking, <clears throat> excuse me, through the fan sites and seeing what they thought about her. And I thought, oh my God, she's this, she's a big, big deal in this story. You know, she's a pretty major character and, and they really love her. And I kind of thought, oh God, I really can't screw this up because, you know, these books have been around for 20 years. So it was definitely, I realised there was a weight of expectation there and the end they were all speculating about the casting and they really wanted Emma Stone. And I was like, well, I'm not Emma Stone. They're not, I don't know what they're going to think about me. Um, but it was, I mean, it's a, such a brilliantly written character. And I think in series one, she starts off, I mean... It, the audience can really see the story through her because she's so, she's an outsider on the inside. She's not ready for the marriage market. She's an outsider in her family. There are all these really, really strong women. Polly Walker, who's amazing, plays my mom in the show. And then you see her at the balls and she is this wallflower. She's so awkward and shy. And then when she's around her best friend, Eloise, played by Claudia Jesse, who's just the best person. Um, <laughs> when she's around her, she's, you could see she's opinionated and she's witty and she's all of these things. And when she's around Colin Bridgerton, she's this real romantic. And so there's so many different sides to her. And she goes on such a journey in the first series. And I hope we get to do more because I feel like there's so much more of her to... To, yeah. so many places to go really yeah I feel like I feel like having having watched the whole series like she really her her story kind of really oh you have it takes okay, a very great. interesting turn almost halfway through doesn't it and we see a slightly a darker side to it without wanting to give anything away yeah that's the thing I think she starts off very sweet and people used to say to me and so oh, she's such a sweet character and I said well she is but she's definitely got this other side to her if you look at her family you know they're very sharp and they throw barbs. And I'm like, if she, if she grew up surrounded by that, it would be, you know, unusual that she wouldn't have a little bit of that in her. And she, But she's complicated. And I think that's why it's really, really fun to play. She's not 100% good. She's not 100% bad either. But I mean, I think she sort of meddles in adult things that she's really not, re- she doesn't realize the consequences her act- actions can have. Um. So yeah, it was really, really fun to play because sometimes things that Penelope would be doing, I go, well, how can I, as a human being, how how would, I wouldn't do that. So why, what's her, 
motivation for it. And also at the end of the day, I spoke a lot with Claudia Jesse about it. We said, look, they're very young. Mm. So they might do things not thinking of the knock-on effect of them. But it's, yeah, it definitely, I think the story gets darker as it goes along. But it's, yeah, it was so fun to play. I loved it. I bet, yeah. Um, I was interested that it's it's definitely not your traditional um, period costume drama. It, it's no. it's kind of edgy. <laughs> it's it's got a lot of sex in it. I have to make that a clear. Lot. A <laughs> yep, lot. There's yep. one episode not involving you, by the way. But there's one episode which is pretty no. much non-stop <laughs> shagging. Have you seen that? I've <laughs> you, seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I. Um, I, I <laughs> I know I try I try and warn people I'm like look it's just not it's not slight like slight glances and the touch of a glove I'm like it's it's full on and I'm that's what romance novels are so you couldn't adapt these books without including that it wouldn't be true to the fabric of the story but yeah your granny does need to be warned before watching Bridgerton yeah yeah there's swearing and everything and I'm interested that the showrunner Chris Van Dusen said it's not your grandmother's period piece um yeah which is definitely an understatement when you when you when you got the role did the tone, because the tone of it is very kind of is quite playful, isn't it? And um, yep. as I say, with all these very modern um, tones to it, was that there from the start? Was that something that was exp- that they explained? Yeah, this is going to be something very, very different. Completely. And I think even the very first audition scripts I got, they were really sparky and really quick. And that's something I've that's put me off period dramas in the past is like how slow they are mm. and sometimes it's just really really drawn out to the point of you're like come on like you know something needs to happen and stop staring out the window and stop whereas this felt really really fresh and different and I think a lot of the things people love about Shondaland like that they loved about Scandal and Grey's Anatomy is it is this sharp witty dialogue that you know it the drama's threaded into it. These complicated characters are threaded in. So I think that's what gives it that fresh tone. I think you can definitely tell it's a Shondaland show. Yeah. And I loved, yeah, how quick it was and how they, I think, like in the first episode, there's so many characters to meet, but I think they do that really effectively. Like the, there's, you know, there's eight Bridgerton children for a start before you even get to my family. Right, so there's right. a big world to establish. But yeah, I think it, it does feel like something really, really new. That's what's exciting about it. Absolutely, yeah. And did how involved was Shonda in this? Did, did you meet her? Did she does she get much involved? Because obviously she's not the actual showrunner. She Chris Chris yes. Ranholt, yeah. So she's executive producer on the show, but like Shondaland as a whole were like so involved to the point that they were picking individual colors for wigs, and like would wow. look at the front of a wig and go, slightly more blonde needs to go in that. Like they were there in every step of the way. It's not like they put their name in it and stepped away. I mean our dailies went back to LA every day Shonda saw everything and I actually met her in February um, I was in LA which feels really weird that I was halfway yeah. across the world then wow. um, but I went to Shondaland and they said oh I don't think I'll get to meet her today because she's filming I said oh that's fine you know I just went in to, to say hello to everybody and then she sort of comes out of her office and without thinking I sort of just took her by that her hands <laughs> and then I thought why are you doing this what stop this is what Oprah does you're not Oprah like all this was going on in my head where I was trying to remain calm but she was so gracious and so lovely and it was funny she told me she was a big fan of Dairy Girls which was you wow. know it's amazing you think this is the most powerful woman in television like she's changed TV forever like so many shows would never have happened even outside of Shondaland without her and Chris started off as an assistant at Shondaland and has worked Uh. his way up so she really properly champions people and yeah it feels amazing to be part of all of that they're and they're really sound as well all the Shondaland people they're like a lot of them are on set a lot of the time and they're 
they're great crack too which I think if you're working with good people good nice people it's it's just a joy and I think it comes through in the show too when you when people actually are having a good time making it yeah oh completely yeah because it's definitely like it's a romp isn't it as, as, as much as anything. oh for sure it, it, yeah it, it, yeah, yeah. Um, I want to talk about the casting because the casting is incredibly, I don't know whether you want to use the word diverse, inclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I and, and far from being kind of colour blind, if you want to use that phrase, it's actually, mm-hmm. I, I, I read one um, active referring to it as, as colour conscious because it feels yeah. like it's it's foregrounding people of colour, black actors, mixed race actors, at the very, you know, in the lead guys, a mixed race actor, mm-hmm. and, and showing these people as dukes and queens. It's a very interesting yeah. element of the show, though, isn't it? I mean, it's one of the parts of the show that I'm proudest of, in all honesty, because, as you said, like, in the beginning, I thought, oh, colourblind casting is a great thing. And then it was sort of an education to me, speaking to a lot of the black actors on the show, like Adjua Anda, who plays Lady Danbury, who's just an incredible actor and so good in the show. But she said, you know, that's not enough because colorblind casting erases someone's race. And it's also not about the best person for the job. It's about creating opportunities because the TV landscape is still really predominantly white. And this, you know, this show is based on a series of, it's it's fiction. So in that world, you can kind of do what you want. We're not trying to make a documentary. We're trying to say, look, this is a world as we imagine it so why not and I keep saying to people you know if people could accept dragons in Game of Thrones <laughs> they should be able to accept a black duke you know and the actors in it are just so so fantastic and I hope that like well not too young people I'm saying young people watch it people over the age of which it is appropriate to watch the show yeah, yeah. but I hope they see themselves on screen and you know there was an actor on set he was a supporting artist and he was black and he said to me we never get to wear these costumes you know, he said he did yeah, so many productions. Yeah. He said we never get to. And I thought, well, well, why not? This is fantasy. This is this is a world we're creating from scratch. So why not? And I think it's it's one of the biggest strengths of the show. It's really I'm so proud of it. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Talking of the costumes, I think it's it's usually it can be quite sexist to ask a, a female actor about costumes <laughs> on the show, but these these costumes are yeah. absolutely extraordinary, aren't they? Even by period standards they're incredibly vibrant and mm-hmm. kind of over the top and all of that How, did you enjoy that element of it it was unbelievable because every single piece that you see on screen was created from scratch and that is so so rare like honestly you would go in they would drape fabric on you pick colors like uh, the costume designer Ella Mirajnik she is phenomenal she designed the greatest showman she designed showgirls you know she's made costumes from everyone from Meryl Streep to Angelina Jolie and like she's just she's so creative and it's also because they just had the freedom to do what they wanted and they sort of said well like there's a lot of period dramas that you see that they're in lovely muted shades of greys and browns and it, that's not Bridgerton Bridgerton is Technicolor it's like a box of chocolates that's why I'm really excited it's coming out at Christmas even though I did yeah. it I said I said we didn't know it was going to be out at Christmas but it's it's a real joy to watch and you know the costumes I wear are super OTT like they're all yellows and pinks and covered in flowers and you know but that's in the books as well Lady Whistledown makes fun of the Featheringtons clothes because their their mother thinks oh I'll put my daughters out in the marriage market and I'll dress them up super lavishly and that will attract a husband and it has the opposite effect <laughs> unfortunately but I yes, think yes. honestly even though everything I wore was so over the top I loved it I thought they were amazing they're incredible yeah and there's also a very interesting kind of like I think it's a kind of feminist 
piece, isn't it? Because it's looking at how women were seen as, you know, they had to be paired off, they had to be almost bought a lot, most of the mm-hmm. time in marriage. If they, if they, there's one character who's with child and that's considered a complete disgrace, all of that, but very mm-hmm. much seen through, I think, a feminist lens. Was that something that you're aware of when you were reading the script? I think somewhat. I mean, I think um, when, I, especially the scenes with Claudia, um, so Penelope and Eloise, I think their rapport really reminded me a lot of Little Women. Mm. in that they were they're young women that are really ahead of their time you know that they would do so well in modern day they wouldn't be as constrained but women were property somewhat in those times and that you know you didn't have any agency for what you did in life and you sort of had to get married and do all of these things that you had no say in really but also I think on the flip side it really deals with the male characters very interestingly too and the weight of expectation on men as well and Jonathan Bailey who plays Anthony Bridgerton the eldest brother you know also seeing how he was as constrained by society as the women were and you think who was the serving really like this whole system is mad and then Benedict Bridgerton also he was you know being the second son in the family and you know him wanting to be an artist and do all of these things so I think it sort of deals with all of their challenges in a way and it like I love that there are so many different characters and stories in the show because I feel like there's so much room for the show to go a lot of really interesting places mm. yeah you're absolutely right that there, there is a lot of stuff isn't there about kind of the constraints of of the polite society and lots of yeah a lot of you your characters are all kind of trying to break free from that in their own way and find a way through mm-hmm. through all of that yeah that's, that's interesting yeah now um I have to ask you um, about Derry Girls Series 3. Where, yes. where are we Where are we with that currently? So we had, um, we had two filming dates which came and went, which was so depressing. But look, it's just the way the world is right now. We were meant to film in May this year and obviously that couldn't happen. And then we were going to try for August and it's, things were still not good. So it couldn't happen then. So um, we're just, it's a waiting game at the minute, to be honest. But Lisa uh, McGee, who created the show, she called each of us and talked us through the storyline. So now I know what's going to happen in series three, oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> which is both a blessing and a curse. A blessing in that the storylines are incredible. I'm so excited to do it, but a curse in that I wanted to do it immediately. Yes, cool. <laughs> so you're like, I'm not doing anything right now. I'll go and do it. We'll shoot it on an iPhone. It will be <laughs> fine. But I mean, at the end of the day, I want to be able to look back on Dairy Girls in 20 years and go, we waited until we could make the best version of series three. We didn't rush it and compromise it because it would have meant cutting out characters and scenes and locations. And, you know, ultimately you don't want to look back on that and think yeah we really compromised it to get it out and I think um, we have such incredible support and fans of the show that they deserve the best version of it too so but yeah it is definitely a lesson in patience I would love to be doing it right now we all would frankly because we mm. you know have our whatsapp group so we're <laughs> talking about it all the time but there's um there's a lot to be excited for I have to be really really vague about the storylines but you will not be disappointed I can promise you that Oh well, can't wait, can't wait. And and, and how is your in terms of lockdown? Like, have you been discovering shows? Like, what have you been binge watching and stuff? Have you what what anything you can recommend that you particularly yeah. enjoyed? So I I was a year late watching it from everyone else, but Euphoria. Oh mm. my god, I just loved it so much. It's just, and I find it really hard to sell it to people. I'm like, it's sort of about the teenagers in high school in America, and Zendaya is the lead, and she plays a recovering drug addict, and you're like, oh, I'm really not selling this, but every part of it, I just adored. Um, I've been watching a lot of Taskmaster as well 
because it's just a complete oh, yeah, yeah. joy. It's um, Daisy May Cooper and it is just... <laughs> oh, yeah, she's the best. So yeah. brilliant. I just, yeah, she's like yeah. the funniest woman alive. She's so funny. Then what else? Um, I've just started The Crown, but I'm really rationing it out. Um, oh, but yeah, those performances yeah. are incredible. Oh God, They're yeah. so brilliant. Yeah. I think that's one, if you're trying to look at the positives of this year, that's one advantage in that there's been such good quality TV. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. there's been a lot to oh, binge. Yeah. 100%. And we should also mention Harlots, which kind of has yeah. been like a hit, I think, of, of lockdown because it arrived on BBC. It had been, it started ages ago, didn't it? On like yeah. an ITV offshoot. And then, but then it got big primetime BBC Two slot and I think became a word of mouth hit. What was it like making that show? Because that is like huge star studded yeah. again period, but a, a total rob. It must have been, that must have been a fun show to do. It was an amazing show to do. And I had just, I'd pretty, we'd finished filming season one of Dairy Girls. It hadn't come out yet. Um, and I got cast in the second series in like a really small part, but a really small part amongst Samantha Morton, Leslie Manville, Liv Tyler, Jessica Brown Finley. Like the cast in yeah. that show was incredible. So being part of it was just like every day was just like a lesson in acting. You just watch these powerhouses, these Oscar nominees, like at the top of their game. And I remember it. It, it's it's much bigger in the states than it is here because it didn't have a platform here because it, yeah it was on ITV Encore as you said um, yeah for series one and then ITV Encore I think just ceased to exist so it was on some sort of offshoot of Amazon Prime that was not easy to get to and I thought God this is such a pity because this is a genuinely brilliant show and I'm not just saying that because I'm in it yeah. Um, yeah so when BBC Two acquired it I thought this is amazing because this is what it needed. It got everything. I was like, I love the soundtrack to Harlots as well because it's this, oh, yeah, it's, it's a really modern, yeah. edgy soundtrack. Yeah. And I know that can be quite polarizing, but I loved it and I thought it was exactly the right feel for the show. Um, yeah, I'm so, I'm so proud of that show. It was such an amazing job to get and be part of. And I'm so glad it got the audience it deserved. You know, it's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. And finally, um, will you will you sit down on Christmas Day with like friends and family and watch Bridgerton, albeit with all the rudeness and what I think I'm going to do? I'm going to write to Shandland and maybe request a PG version because oh, I'll be amazing. with my my family on Christmas Day and there are some little ones <laughs> within that. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's definitely not like a get, gather all the family around the TV kind of watch. No. Um, no. Yeah, my mum has seen some of it and it's quite... <laughs> She was like, what is that? Because it gets racy pretty immediately. There's not, you know, yeah. there, you, yeah. you're pretty much warned, like, straight off, this is what this show is. This is not, you know, Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so if I can get a PG version, that will be ideal. That will be great. I love the idea of um, the Shondaland people making you of your own <laughs> special PG version of, of this eight-hour eight-hour series that is full of sex, swearing, and adult behaviour. I know. I know. Yeah, They're going to be very short so a, episodes. <laughs> yeah, they are. Yeah, but great idea though. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nicola. It's been it's oh, been brilliant. Boy, it was a pleasure. So nice to chat to you again. That was Nicola Coughlin, and you can watch her in Bridgerton on Netflix from Christmas day we would of course be reviewing it in this episode of the show but we cannot because it is embargoed until the day after we go out so sorry about that but fear not because we will move on now to this week's news and i mentioned earlier on uh, a little sort of mandalorian type thing so i'm going to steer clear of mandalorian spoilers and simply say that it has been announced that in december 2021 we will see the book 
of Boba Fett. Now, it is my firm understanding that this is an as-yet-unannounced spin-off Mandalorian show featuring Boba Fett. There is a chance that that is not actually the nature of it, but I'm not going to go any more into that. So th- I'm waiting for a Disney announcement, basically, to confirm this. But there is there is evidence of this at the end of the most recent episode of The Mandalorian, as in it's announced at the end of it. So uh, if you watch The Mandalorian, then do stay to the end of the credits of the final episode for that just in case there were enough disney plus announcements recently indeed huh. yeah. indeed indeed um uh, i yeah. want to talk about the it's a sin trailer mm. <laughs> did we see wow. it did we see it oh yes oh, i did yes. not tell me oh, about it oh my god it's amazing so obviously as we know this is russell t davis's uh New Channel 4 drama set in the 80s, um, kind Mm. of during the AIDS crisis. And there is actually, without wanting to turn this into a um, how many times in different ways can I plug Empire, there is a um, major feature with Russell T. Davies in the new issue of Empire, interviewed by none other than Boyd Hilton. Mm. Correct. Is that right, Boydie? Yes. Yes. Who was incidentally sitting next to Ricky Gervais when he did the interview. So that was, that was unexpected. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, yeah you've, uh, I mean, I have to say I've seen the whole bloody thing. So, yeah, the trailer the trailer does do it justice, so, which is, yeah, it's, it's going to be incredible, yeah. Here's a bit of unexpected news. If you were going to cast someone to play Pamela Anderson, would your first choice be English Rose Lily James? I mean, <laughs> I'm just going to throw this out there. It seemed... An interesting choice. What are you? What are you uh, saying, James? <laughs> is this, yeah, is this a news story, <laughs> or just your fantasy world? No, this is actually news that Lily James has been cast to play Pamela Anderson and Sebastian Stan to play Tommy Lee yes. uh, in a series that will encompass the leak of their honeymoon sex tape. Yeah, I mean it has to. But James, actors act. And but I I feel like you're making judgments on t- certain types of women. Am I now? What am I judging, Terry? Tell me what I'm judging. You're you, 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 and your like English rose, uh, respectable girl <laughs> like Lily James versus maybe a woman, a woman who's <laughs> who had a certain type of plastic surgery and 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 made a sex tape with her rock star boyfriend. I I am not judging her for making a sex tape. I'm judging her for not looking after it. But. Uh... <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, I just thought this was, it was a bizarre bit of casting. It just, I, yeah, I, it, I found it slightly strange. But then, who, you know, who would you get? But then Pamela Anderson's one of these, but like, she's pretty, you know, she's so iconic. It's like, it's a, that's a difficult role to cast. But they can do things with makeup and um, prosthetics. Yes, I am and, familiar you know. with the concept of acting. <laughs> yeah. I should probably put just that say. out there. I know, I know that if you need someone to play Pamela Anderson, it is possible to use someone other than yeah. the actual I mean, Pamela Anderson. Gary Oldman does not look like Winston Churchill. Let me just say that. Yeah, or Dracula. But what are you going to do? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the big news for me that that that, that um, broke after we um, did our last podcast last week was all the new Netflix UK commissions, including one for Sophie Petzl um, mm, of Blood yes, and yes. and um, listener to this podcast. And she, this news broke. Um, by the way, Sophie is a big Arsenal fan, so I often talk to her about Arsenal on Twitter. And it broke during another calamitous performance by Arsenal uh, live. And in the middle of that happening, Netflix announced that she is adapting <laughs> um, the Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle into seven-part 
big epic series, which is a brilliant, brilliant thing that's happening. And so I think she kind of, she, she, she managed, she didn't even know the announcement was being made. So she was kind of bowled over simultaneously by the announcement being made that she's got this massive Netflix commission and Arsenal being absolutely appalling and terrible in the football. And um, <laughs> there are other commissions as well. That, so there's a football drama, a comedy being made called The Red Zone, which is being produced by Neil Street Productions, which is Sam Mendes' production company. And um, that's being written by Barney Ronay and Jonathan Liu, who neither of you will know, are two of the best football journalists out there. They're both brilliant writers about football. Um, so that's quite exciting if you're into that. And there's a Mr. There's a there's a Rowan Atkinson special, Man vs. B, ten short episodes where he's attacked by a bee in in a house. I'm, yeah, I'm quite looking forward to it. And Joe Cornish's big new thing, an eight part. Um, thing called Lockwood and Co. Do you see that? That's his next project, which is a kind of I think it's like a YA ghost hunting um, series. Mm. And Joe Barton of Giri Hadji famed his new project is Half Bad, which is uh, also adapted from books written by Sally Green, and he's brilliant, and that's really exciting. So all these projects, mm. and Sarah Dullard's got a book. She wrote um, episodes of Doctor Who and Being Human. She's got a show called Cuckoo Song, which is a horror story. So all of this stuff is really exciting. I think really interesting commissions. So this is from the UK production bit of Netflix if you like and it's Anne Mensah who's she, she's in charge of all this stuff and I think it's her making her announcements of all the mm. stuff that she's commissioned um, and she is absolutely brilliant I interviewed her recently and she's a phenomenal she's one of the best TV executives out there FYI great very exciting stuff. One thing I'm surprised that you two aren't already crowing about, especially since Terry's weekend plans include watching season two of Servant, is that it has been renewed for a third season ahead yeah. of season two premiere. So Servant will go on and gets them close to the... I mean, they did say there was a very specific arc that they were yes. looking to do with this. So yes. it looks like that they will get the... I think they're looking for 40 episodes total. So they're getting closer. What else is happening? Everyone on The Witcher has got COVID, apparently. Uh, <laughs> no, that's not true. That's not true. A lot of people on The Witcher have had COVID, and uh, now Henry Cavill has injured himself. So The Witcher Season 2 is continuing filming, but without Henry Cavill, because he has had a minor injury. Uh, I think a leg muscle injury. Um, so, yeah, The Witcher has had a, 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 a difficult time. But I'm sure it will be fabulous when it arrives, and we should all toss coins in its general direction whenever we can. Did you see that Mike Flanagan announced that he's wrapped on his new next Netflix horror series, which is called Midnight Mass? Yes, interesting stuff. Like I say, I've got a lot of time for Mike Flanagan. Didn't love Bly Manor all yeah. that much, but I have yeah. an awful lot of time for him. He's very, very good. Well, I think one of the reasons Bly Manor was was disappointing, slightly disappointing, was that he wasn't of, as involved yeah, his in it. Yeah, he's less involved Yeah, he's less involved. This is, he seems entirely involved in it. Yeah. And this is a new original story, which I think is exciting. What else has happened? Uh, Marvel Studios will be debuting Legends, Marvel Legends, ahead of the WandaVision premiere. So they mentioned this at the announcement, which we talked about, I think we talked about this bit last week. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, it's uh, it's kind of a look at individual characters, but it's, it seems to be part filling out and part sort of flashback previously on. So uh, the first two episodes of this are expected to, to centre around Wanda and Vision uh, and kind of tee up WandaVision. Um, so, yeah, I can't quite get my handle on what this show will be, but um, hey, they said they say each dynamic segment uh, feeds directly into an upcoming series premiere on Disney Plus. So it does seem like they are just little previously ons or this show will make no sense unless you've watched the following. Anyway, moving on. Uh, so another bit of news that relevant to my interest, Matt Smith and Olivia Cook 
have joined the Game of Thrones prequel, House of the Dragon, uh, which is pretty exciting news. So Matt Smith is going to be playing Terry, as I'm sure you will know, Prince Daemon Targaryen, the younger brother of uh, of King Viserys. Uh, and Olivia Cook will be taking on the role of Alicent Hightower, the daughter of, of course, Otto Hightower, who, as you will know, Terry, was Hand of the King. The voice is back. <laughs> the voice is back. I, the, I think you'll find voice. <laughs> Extraordinary. Right. I'm sending you to the wall. Take the black immediately. <laughs> Have you got any news you'd like to share, Terry? <laughs> or just the voice? Just the voice. <laughs> right. <laughs> Is that it for news then? Have we exhausted all points Uh, of interest? I think so. Right. Okay. Well, that's it for news for 2020. (laughs) So let's move on to this week's reviews. And first up, we have The Serpent. This is based on the story of serial killer Charles Sobrage, who murdered a series of travellers and hippies in Southeast Asia back in the 70s. Uh, He became known as The Serpent and also The Bikini Killer, though not due to his dress sense. Uh, Tahar Ramin plays Sobrage, while Jenna Coleman plays his kind of accomplice in this. Boyd, what did you make of The Serpent? Well, I think it's um, interesting that this is the BBC's flagship big drama for starting on New Year's Day. Um, Last year we had Dracula. Um, We often have Sarah Phelps' Agatha Christie adaptations. Neither of those this year. And and so this is is here instead. And it's... What struck me about it is that it is filmed almost as if it's made in the period where it's set. It's got a very kind of 70s vibe to it, which I liked. Visually, I think it's really interesting. Um, And almost like the way that the techniques, the directorial techniques, there's like like slow pans and like there's like almost Robert Altman-esque moments where it's suddenly a huge sudden close-up on someone's face. Um, you've got the authenticity of it is quite incredible. You've got uh, Tahar Rahim and Jenna Coleman as the main couple who are French. She's Canadian French. She He's French-French. Speaking French throughout, incredible, uh, presumably with, with great authenticity. The level of authenticity is extraordinary. So you've got the these you know, most British cast members speaking in various different languages. Billy Howell, who plays this kind of Dutch diplomat, kind of junior diplomat who ends up investigating the case inadvertently because he's trying to track down to a Dutch couple who've gone missing. And he speaks fluent Dutch throughout it. So that uh, that kind of level of detail I thought was was fascinating. Um, it, it moves about in time in, in classic modern day TV fashion <laughs> that I bang on about all the time. But it, even more... Ch- kind of extraordinarily it it will start with one sequence then th- an, another the next sequence will, will say 18 months previously mm. and yet the following sequence will carry on in the different timeline so it kind of the timeline wise it's really really quite confusing and slightly challenging but i think if you kind of let it flow over you and absorb the fact that it's just a quite simple story of how this guy this incredibly cold chillingly kind of psychotic absolutely you know, this man does not give a shit about what's happening to these poor, his poor victims, and the extent to which Jenna Coleman's um, uh, character is complicit in that is fascinating. And by the end of the, I've watched two episodes, and by the end of the second episode, what's 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 going to be the thing that drives it forward? I think dramatically is working out how the hell they do get caught by pretty much with this Dutch guy at the centre of it. So I do want to carry on. Whether it's eight, this is an eight parter, and that does feel a lot of stuff, a long series, eight hours of this. Um, I don't know whether it's going to sustain it. I'm not going to say it's not going to sustain it. And I am 
interested in Karen watching it, but that feels like a lot to tell this story at this stage in the in my in my viewing. And of they're it. a full hour each as well. Like there's not like they're short episodes. Oh yeah, I, yeah. yeah this I, is BBC. I didn't enjoy this three hours. at all. Um, I, I think partly is I found it really grubby and unpleasant. And yes, that is clearly a side effect of the subject matter. It's not supposed to be, you know, a laugh riot or a feel-good hit. That's not really what it's going for. But I think it's a combination of the subject matter, how just unpleasant he is to be around. And also, as you say, the way it is shot in that very 70s style that gives it, you know, almost a much more sordid edge than it might have done otherwise. Um, and I just, I found it quite, it just, it made me quite like depressed. <laughs> I was just like, no, I didn't like it at all. I thought the performances were good, you know, and, but, but I think slightly hamstrung by the fact that not, I mean, as you say, not not so much that the subtitles bothered me, but a combination of everyone switching languages and the timeline can't stay still for five seconds. And perhaps I wasn't enjoying it to begin with. I think all of those things made me feel like by the end of the first episode, I thought, this is a bit grubby. It's not nice. It's also really hard work as well, because it's just like, it's not naturally that compelling. Mm. And there's so much going on, you really have to focus on it. And I just thought, this this life's too short. Life's too short for me to continue watching eight hours of the seven. So I, I probably won't yeah. press on with that. Terry, how did you feel about, you know... I the- agree with you, James. I found um, the stuff... I think the stuff you liked, Boyd, I I really struggled with. So this, the 70s-ness of the filmmaking, mm. like these mm. mad pans, these inse- extreme zooms, um, these yeah. weird cine film frame over footage. Yeah. Like I found it really contrived and quite laboured and not very successful. And weirdly, it made it look more like telly, if you know what I mean, like all of those kind of preconceptions mm. about telly trying to be ambitious in ways it often can't be, which made it then feel old-fashioned. Um, I thought um, Tahar Rahim, I love him, so... Uh, a Prophet is one of my favourite films. I think he's great, but what I found challenging was you don't learn enough about him and about Jenna Coleman's character, right? And I think I read something which kind of suggested it was deliberate because they didn't want to be seen to be glamorising this couple or kind of centering their story. But you kind of want to know why they were so charming and why people were so seduced by them um or maybe why and maybe it's a lot to ask of a first episode but maybe why they turned out to be complete fucking psychopaths i don't know but you don't get any of that kind of background or context so i found them as characters really hard to engage with the timeline stuff is fucking nuts i'm sorry like it's <laughs> mad i'm like you can't go 18 it's... months three months by the way, and because you have no sense and it's unnecessarily mm. complicated it's quite a simple story about how they end up, you know, essentially killing loads of people. And and to put this weird flipping and flopping timeline on it, I had no idea where I was. Um, and I also found the, the there's a whole, I think from what I can tell, it's kind of like, a, is it a victim per episode? Oh, I think so. Crassly yeah. speaking. There's definitely another victim. And so there's one yeah. kind of, you know, the, the bit where there's a bit towards the end, obviously this isn't a spoiler because they were serial killers, where they <laughs> murder their first victim or the first victim we see. And I found that incredibly yeah. upsetting. It was really, really yeah. difficult to watch. Um, and there was some, there was a weird contradiction between that and kind of what James is talking about, which is this seedy feeling. And then this kind of slightly, 
um, stylistic filmmaking. There's something un- which mm-hmm. I found uncomfortable, the contradiction between those things. Um, I, I found that really challenging. I'm not going to keep watching this. That scene not. you talk about, I think, mm. is is at the heart of why I knew I wouldn't watch any more of this because it is really upsetting and hard to watch. And I think part of it is because the type of serial killer he was, was he wasn't like consumed with like lust or rage or no. lashing out. There's something really offhanded and kind of casual about the way he went about killing people. And that makes it weirdly a lot more unpleasant than if it yeah. had been more he's opportunistic graphic. yeah he's opportunistic, he's opportunistic. there's just a, yeah. there's a he's, he's so just indifferent yeah and i think yeah. and it's but i think that is yeah yeah i think that's the most interesting thing about the story mm. right is his, is his indifference and his opportunism and all of that and how so that i think that's what that's the spark of it i think that's what they're trying to get to the nub of but i do agree that there's a there's a there's an there is there's something not quite right about this stylized filmmaking which people will routinely call it stylish it is stylish in a way Mm. you know from the costumes and the color palette and all of that and as you say those zooms and all that to the really sick unpleasantness of the crimes it it is queasy viewing and i think you know i'm sure it is you know it's deliberate on my that but yeah i i'm not i'm not necessarily fully on board with that i agree with that well if you want to pick me up on New Year's Day, then this may not be the one for you. But uh, this does air on BBC One uh, on Friday, January the 1st at 9pm. Next up, something a little bit more upbeat. We have the Motherland Christmas special in which Julia, Liz, Kevin and Meg discover that Christmas is utter carnage when kids, extended family and Amanda's anal Christmas party are involved. Isn't that right, Terry? Oh, my God. So... <laughs> I, I want to preface what I'm about to say by the fact that um, I had three glasses of, of gin and tonic last night um, oh and I was on my third <laughs> when I watched this episode. You went full Meg. And I I have not laughed so much in ages. <laughs> Maybe it's, you know, London's back in tier three. Um, it's been quite a difficult week. It's been really busy in the office. I don't know. Maybe, like, this was just what I desperately needed in my life, but fuck me, this was funny. So, as we all know, Motherland is the, essentially the middle-class parenting comedy created by Holly Walsh and uh, Sharon Horgan, um, and it's very much a around uh i suppose the um the pressures and strains um especially put on mothers um and what i love about this show is that you never fucking see the kids it's amazing yeah. <laughs> like because it's all about these mothers and this one father um so as we know it uh, Julia is the lead who's Anna Maxwell Martin who we talk about um, whenever we review one of her shows she's just amazing <laughs> Diane Morgan as Liz who is the northern single mother um, Kevin who is the token guy Paul Reedy who obviously the gag is that he's um, he's more uh, shall we say maternal than some of the women <laughs> and then obviously as we know last season I think Sharon Horgan gave an interview in which she said you know, the first series had been really fucking white. Um, they added a new character, Meg, played by uh, Tanya Moody, who kind of on the surface does 
look like she has it all, which is essentially what the show is challenging, but she really doesn't. She's a massive, massive, massive caner. She gets up to all sorts. They're always having to like either stop her from getting arrested, drag her out of a bush. Like she is amazing. And there's some brilliant moments with her in this. So it's a very simple conceit, this Christmas special, um, which is Amanda, you know, dreadful um, Queen Bee Amanda, played by Lucy Punch, who is the kind of alpha alpha mum um, and she's throwing a Christmas party at her incredibly white house um, the dress code is tinsel and tiaras and that's the basic kind of premise but underlying it as ever with Motherland is the thought that you know um, often things like Christmas especially all of the extra pressure that's put on women and put on mothers um, uh, there's a br- there's just like a brilliant thing with the fridge um, which is Julia's like you know her, her parents have come down and they've brought some random food and shoved it in a fridge and she opens the fridge and this this like half onion keeps falling out and every time she opens it it falls out little things like this which is I love how they show and don't tell in this program it's, it's just these little details of the insanely frustrating things that happen um, when you're a parent. Um, so this, I just thought the comedy in this was fucking brilliant. There's a whole mind. I was just thinking of you, James Dyer. Oh there's a whole yeah. Minecraft, Minecamp <laughs> joke which that, runs, that destroyed yeah. me. Which Absolutely destroyed me. Thing, which is just brilliant. <laughs> and even stuff that like actually wasn't that funny. There's a line where they go, "Why is it called a porn star martini?" And she goes, "Because it relaxes your anus." And I don't. And I was just on the floor, and I can't really tell you why. <laughs> They mentioned an Alsatian with a strap on at one point, and that nearly killed me as well. There's a yeah. whole, there's a whole bit where Meg like climbs a Christmas tree and then falls out of it. Um, I just love this, and what I loved about it especially is this show is is kind of anti-sentiment completely. Yeah. It doesn't go in for mawkish emotion um, around parenting, around friendship. And yet still, and this is what you always want from a Christmas special, it's there is something, there's moments of sweetness and sincerity that kind of don't don't mean it's just a constant kind of piss ripping. And it does have heart to this show, I think, um, which isn't always yeah. obvious, but at the end you kind of, <laughs> I've, I found it quite moving. I had had three gin and tonics, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, I just honestly, I loved this and I don't, I don't think I was expecting to love it as much as, as I did, but I just thought, and, and all credit to the writers, this is written by four women, Sharon Horgan, Holly Walsh, Helen Serafinowicz, I did say that right, right? Um, yeah. And Barunka O'Shaughnessy, and and all credit to those four women because the writing is impeccable. So that's two wobbly thumbs up from Twatted Terry. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I mean, this is a new segment. Twatted Terry should be the new yeah. Banshee replacement where drunk, Terry loads up on gin and tonics and reviews a comedy. <laughs> three, three gin and tonics. That's apparently my perfect level these days, post-baby. Three gin and tonics. And I'm like... <laughs> oh, it, it is... They have done a brilliant job, though. I have to say, yeah. Like, everything about... The, just Minecraft. The oh, whole Minecraft. Minecraft. <laughs> 
subplot um, <laughs> Kevin mispronouncing it like that. I mean, that is brilliant. The other thing I thought was brilliant, sorry, is her husband, um, played by Oliver Chris, Julia's husband in the queue at, at the supermarket <laughs> buying her Christmas presents and her guessing exactly what he was going to pick up um, was brilliantly done. And just, yeah, but I thought the, the closing uh, montage, which is where it gets, you know, where, where it does get less cynical, I thought was perfectly judged um just because it could have been could gone too far but they somehow they absolutely make that work mm. so well yeah i absolutely love it it's really really good this makes me realize that i've massively missed out by not having got up to date with motherland generally because it's extraordinarily well written and each of the characters has mm. you know they're not two-dimensional they do have depth but they're really funny really really funny like and again it is unusual for me to be you know laughing out loud in a comedy and yet and yet this this really tickled me i thought it was just absolutely delightful so many good gags this is exactly exactly the kind of thing you want to watch just before christmas uh, and the good news is you can because this airs on bbc2 on wednesday december 23rd at 9 p.m highly recommended finally this week we have nuns and ghosts in the himalayas in the beebs adaptation of black narcissus rumor Godden's novel uh this one sees Gemma arterton as a youthful mother superior looking to open a convent school in an abandoned palace in the mountains but bad things have happened in this particular palace and it's not long before it all goes wimples up boyd did you like this one or were you having none of it whoa very good um <laughs> i I, I have issues. I have issues with this. Can we I mean, talk about the prologue say, for a second here? The prologue, yeah. which is like yeah. really short, but it's like a sensory explosion. And you're just like, <laughs> I have I taken drugs? Have I been, Has my eggnog been spiked? Like, what the fuck is happening? Yeah. Well, the prologue in which, I mean, it is the, it is the very first scene, yeah, where, where a woman hurls herself from the from the top of a very high by the way there's no health and safety in the design of this <laughs> no. extraordinary um um place this massive building that these nuns are going to create a school in um at, at the top of the himalayas it's yeah, the top of them banisters it's on the side of a mountain and there's a massive staircase leading up there. There's no balance. There's no railing at all. I mean, how could anyone get away with designing this massive staircase on the top of the house overlooking a cliff edge and there's no fucking railing? And sure enough, the opening scene, as we're alluding to, shows uh, a woman throwing herself off. And then that establishes in classic modern day TV style. It then flashes forward to um, a later period where all the nuns are, are gathering to sort out that they're going to occupy that building. Um, the owner of it is encouraging them he there's so there's dark secrets from that point of view of why did this woman throw herself off the edge there's another group of people who were occupying it previously and they've got rid of it so there's a kind of sense that it's um, haunted in some way either literally or metaphorically the gem arterton plays sister Clodagh, who's in charge of getting all these nuns up this to this to this place on the top of the mountain and establishing it as a school for the locals um uh, ashley franciosi is sister who is the um sister in this place who gets most affected by what's going on she she's gets in a bad way um she kind of falls ill she um doesn't like the locals she treats the kids she doesn't talk again with the kids and that, who they're supposed to be teaching diana rigg and it pops up in her last ever role i believe a yeah. last of a tv role right at the beginning and um jim broadbent is there as well so it's got this this incredible cast it's um written by amanda co who's a very who's a, who's a really good novelist it's directed by charlotte bruce christensen and it's 
I think the idea of it, the concept of it clearly is let's ignore the absolute cast iron classic Pell and Pressburger 1947 <laughs> film, which I absolutely love. So I'm laying that down, down there now and it's an incredible piece of work. Let's ignore that and go back to the original novel by Rumor Godden um, that came out, I think, in the 30s. And it's kind of an adaptation of that. The problem for me is that they've decided, they've clearly made the decision to make it a kind of lavish but essentially classically made piece mm. of television drama of this story. Um, really good cast. Alessandro Nivola, by the way, is Mr. Dean. He's the kind of guy, he's the kind of handyman guy who the <laughs> nuns are all a flutter over when he when he pops up to fix the loo. Um, so it's got this very, um, uh, I would say, almost like calm um, tone to it. Apart from, as you say, the opening scene where you see the woman throwing herself, and then the last scene of the very first episode goes goes crazy as um, Ashton Franciotti's character goes a bit crazy. But apart from that, it's quite stately and tasteful, and I don't think that's the right. It feels I don't feel that's the right tone for this story, and I and I can only apologise. I'm sure it's irritating for everyone involved. You know, not that not they're listening in making this show, but I just went back to the film last night. I thought I've got to go back to the film and to check what that was like because in my mind it's a crazy, mad, eccentric, weird film, and it is still crazy, mad, eccentric, <laughs> and weird. But I think that's the tone you need for this story because it's about how these nuns are psychologically affected by their situation, and you know, are they? You know, is there is there any kind of real haunting going on that's affecting them? What? Why are they like this? And it's a weird concept. It's a weird almost like quasi-horror concept, although of course the panel Pressburger film is a use certificate thing and they somehow allude to all of the sex and, and um, you know, heating up of, of these women very subtly within the context of a 1947 film. But that felt right. This feels too tasteful and too stately and not mad enough. And I was thinking about Dracula, which was this the equivalent of this last year again, and how brilliant that first episode of Dracula, where everything was ratcheted up mm. massively and it was so gothic and over the top. This needs to be like that. It needs to be slightly over the top and crazy, and it just isn't. And I didn't, I didn't think it was very interesting for me for that reason. Boyd is completely and utterly correct. I mm. like I wanted, and I thought I was promised gothic horror. I want mm. gothic horror and and lust and you know like repression and and all of these things and I felt this left me really 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 cold apart from the opening scene and the closing <laughs> scene both of which really got me going yeah. everything in between I found and, and and it's not it's not, I don't want to say boring because that's really offensive but it it is cold that's the only way I can think to describe it which is the exact opposite of what I thought it would be it's not even particularly sinister you know bearing in mind that it is it does have these touches or promises of gothic horror which are never delivered on apart from those two scenes um and so what you have instead is this kind of quite austere serious restrained drama I mean, even Mr. Dean, right, who is meant to be this temptation, this, I mean, he's rugged and he's got a tan and, but, you know, and there's, I think there's meant to be sexual tension between him and Sister Clodagh, but there just isn't at all. Mm, And and so all this, I was expecting simmering lust and passion and repressed fire and, and madness and the macabre and literal ghosts and mad women and, you know, and, and, and all these things. And I, 
absolutely thought it was going to be like Dracula. I really did. That was mm. in my head and maybe I misunderstood mm. it or, you know, um, uh, expected something that was never going to be. But I thought it was very much that kind of slightly camp, uh, over the top ridiculousness of of Dracula, which committed to a very specific tone and a very specific um well, yeah, tone, and it is it is camp, and it is ridiculous, and it is outlandish, and it is you know not meant to be taken seriously as serious drama, whereas it feels like that's what this is trying to achieve. And so, when you actually the opening scene and the closing scene feel completely out of step with the rest of it, um, and I would love to have seen more of that, but it was like a different suddenly like a different show. Mm, yeah, I I agree a hundred percent with both of you. It's it's so strange that all the way through this hour-long first episode, there's no sense of creeping dread. There's nothing sinister going on particularly. All you've really got is Gemma Arterton's mother superior, you know, flirting with the handyman, or not, as the case may be, and then uttering the phrase water closet, which, while pleasant, was not really enough to keep me going for the full hour. Um, yeah, I'm not quite sure. And, you know, unless there's a massive switcheroo that comes up in one of the... Because like, it's a three-part series. Mm. And if something massive happens, like they all get transported to the present day in a kind of Dracula style <laughs> in it all. Yeah. That would knows? be amazing. Who knows? Maybe this will be the opposite of Dracula, where the first two episodes will be rubbish and the third one will be amazing. Could happen. Uh, but assuming it doesn't, <laughs> it isn't great. But even if it does, that's one episode of a three-parter. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like that, that, yeah. that you can't this you have to presume this is the template for what follows yes. Yes. um and if it does radically change then that makes the first episode even more of a misstep surely i mean it doesn't i've i've seen the second episode and it doesn't it, it kind of then calms down again it it kind of ratchets things up you know at certain moments but overall it maintains a kind of yeah kind of steady pace shall we say without wanting to be too harsh but yeah it's 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 a bit bewildering that they decided to go with this way of telling the story well black narcissus airs on bbc one on sunday december 27th at 9 p.m and these are three samplings of the christmas and new year programming that we have coming up obviously bridgerton drops on netflix on christmas day we were not able to properly review that because the embargo is still in place unfortunately uh but boyd would you like to tell us a little bit more about the other tv treats coming up over the festive break sure um uh there's loads i mentioned the goes wrong show which i absolutely love is, is a really clever um uh, that series last year was fantastic and they do the nativity mm. that's on tuesday the 22nd at seven o'clock on bbc one it's absolutely hilarious i've seen it there's a documentary about bridget jones which is good on bbc two that day at nine o'clock the all creatures great and small special is on that day on channel five that's channel five's biggest drama ever in its entire history and wow. did really well on the same day as motherland um that's a bit of a good that's a good day for comedy because the ghosts christmas special is on yes. bbc one that day and the king gary christmas special is on bbc one later um with which i love is with a brilliant tom davis i think that is like a latter day only fools and horses style comedy um you would hate it james don't i have no doubt watching it but it's really good um and there's a jennifer saunders um, thing on that day as well Christmas Eve there's a Roald and Beatrix the tale of the curious mouse is Sky One's big special Christmas film with Dawn French playing Beatrix, Beatrix Potter who meets the young Roald Dahl it's based on a true story and it's got an incredible cast Jessica Hines Rob Ryder and Alison Stedman and he's really good actually it's kind of not as um, you might feel it's kind of like slightly for children but it isn't really it's it's mm. it's, it's, it's really good Bridgerton as you say Christmas Day 
the whole thing. Quentin Blake's Crown is like the classic Channel 4 animated um, thing on that day at 7.40. Uh, I won't mention the Mars Singer, James, which is on, starts on Boxing Day. <laughs> or Mrs. Brown's Boy's The TV Mrs. Show, yeah. which is on no, Christmas Day. Deliberately not mentioning that. Then I would say that's probably the main stuff, I think. I'm just looking. Well, I, you've of course yeah. forgotten to mention that on Wednesday, December the 30th, Vikings returns for the new season, which hopefully I will have caught up with uh, in time to to jump straight into that. And sorry, and um, Doctor Who's special Revolution of the Daleks is on New Year's Day, BBC One, 6.45, which is effectively a feature length. That is an hour and a quarter, which is longer than some films come out in cinemas these days. So that is mm. kind of a Doctor Who film, really. And that is very exciting. Um, indeed. The stand drop Drops on Stars play on Sunday, January the 3rd. We'll be reviewing that in the first episode once we are back. Uh, we'll also be reviewing uh, A Discovery of Witches, which is returning. We're very excited about that as well. Oh, Jack, uh, David Williams is Jack and the Beanstalk after ever after. It's on Sky One on Wednesday the 23rd, and it's really funny and good. Oh, okay. And we should also mention The Great does drop on Channel 4 on the 3rd, on Sunday the 3rd at 9pm. So for those who haven't had a chance to watch The Great, it will be on Channel 4. Well, lots of exciting Christmas viewing there. And that's kind of it for this episode of the Pilot TV Podcast and for the entire show for 2020. By this point, I'm pretty sure you all know exactly what we want for Christmas, so do send those five-star ratings our way by Christmas morning, or Terry will come round to your house and nick all your presents. Uh, we are now, as ever, on social media, at James C. Dyer, at Boyd Hilton, and at Terry underscore White. And make a note in your diary, as we'll be back week commencing 4th of January. Note that I say week commencing and not Monday 4th of January, because it is our first day back, and we need to record it and edit the thing, so there's a definite possibility it won't be up until Tuesday. But... But fret not, fret not, because while there is no actual show next week, as a special Christmas treat, I will be dropping a little Cobra Kai special into your stocking. I spoke to Billy Zabka and Ralph Macchio about the impending and indeed glorious third season of Cobra Kai, and you'll be getting that as a standalone episode in your ears between Christmas and the New Year to tide you over. Strike first, strike hard, no mercy, Merry Christmas. Pilot out. <laughs>